On today's episode of the show, we are taking you to Sun Valley, Idaho, where we'll sit on a panel discussion featuring the voices of both local and global innovators on the topic of resiliency, innovation, and opportunity in the face of climate change. My name is Serena Simons, and this is the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Christensen is the executive director of Sun Valley Institute for Resilience and leads today's panel discussion. The theme of the discussion revolves around turning risks into opportunities and how economics, policy, and natural resources fare in the face of climate change. With the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, recently releasing their special report on the effects of a 1.5 degree global temperature increase and the very real and very urgent implications of those findings. These discussions on mitigating and adjusting our approaches to climate change in these dire times is more timely than ever. All right, welcome everyone. We're gonna get started. Welcome. My name is Amy Christensen, and I'm the founding executive director of the Sun Valley Institute up in Sun Valley, and we are very honored to be co-organizing this event with our friends at Warm Springs Consulting. Just to give you a brief on both of us, I think a lot of folks, who's pulling this together? What's the goal here? Um, We founded the Sun Valley Institute uh, in the wake of fires and snowfall changes and some of the impacts that we've been seeing economically also with our economic downturns uh, to be an institute to build what we call lasting quality of place. Um, to turn the risks that we face into opportunities, which is exactly what we're talking about here today. How do we turn our energy risks into energy opportunities? Um, And Warm Springs Consulting is a sustainability consulting firm in the Intermountain West. So those are your two co-organizers of the event today. Um, But really, this is about our speakers and about the topic in front of us. It's an incredibly exciting time in energy all over the world and energy here in Idaho. Not only do we have incredible assets, renewable energy assets, we also have knowledge and expertise in the form of Idaho National Laboratory, power engineers, some of our folks here. Um, We're very fortunate to have based here in Idaho. And so how do we turn those opportunities into real benefits for our state? So with that, I would like to introduce our first speaker. Our first speaker is Kate Gordon. Kate is the founding director of the Risky Business Project which was a very powerful collaboration of business and uh, economic experts around the risks and opportunities facing the United States business sector uh, from climate change. And has, Kate has a long background in economic development at the local and state level, as well as the national and global work that she's done with the Risky Business Project and others. Uh, she is an advisor to the Paulson Institute, and she is also a non-resident fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. So with that, I'm going to turn over the dais to Kate, and then we'll hear from our speakers, and then we'll have about a half an hour of Q&A for everybody that will moderate afterwards. So thank you, Kate. Thank you, everybody. It's great to be here. I actually really like being here in Idaho talking about these issues, uh, which I do talk about all over the the country and increasingly um, also in China, where I've done a lot of work. So we can talk about that in the Q&A if you want to talk about China. So as Amy said, we're really here to talk about risk and opportunity. I'm going to really focus on sort of the physical climate risk side of climate change and climate impacts in Idaho. I think others on the panel will be more focused in on very specific opportunities. I'll touch on a little bit of opportunity. I think some of those um, same things that 
make Idaho at risk are also potential opportunities. So uh, we'll talk a bit about that. I think we're used to, in the climate world, um, talking about risk and impacts in terms of very of kind of climate science. And you've all probably seen some version of this chart. This is just essentially the, here's where we are now. We have to get off our path and on another path, or else we will get to far um, greater levels of global warming than we can handle as a society and as an economy. You know, I find this useful just as a reminder, but I also often find it sort of inaccessible. Um, I think the scientific community is getting a little better about communicating the impacts. The most recent, I don't know if people saw it, a couple days ago, the International Plan on Climate Change came out with their report that was commissioned by governments on what it would take to get to 1.5 degrees. You may remember from the Paris Agreement that that global agreement was to get to below two, significantly below two degrees, but many of the island nations facing kind of this most severe impacts asked for 1.5 report, and this report just came out. The kind of the scary thing about this report is it basically says we only have till 2040 to take serious action to get below 1.5, but it also says that past emissions are already there and are already causing impacts, and those two things are both important for what I'm gonna talk about. One, we need to act now, but two, we also need to think about existing emissions in the atmosphere. I think those existing emissions are an opportunity for Idaho, so we'll talk about that. Most of my work has been about translating from that climate science and very, very data-heavy um, and kind of apocalyptic scenario, global-level work into very local economic impact work um, on climate impacts, and particularly a lot of the work I've done um, has been through a, a project. This is this is from the Task Force on Financial Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which was headed by Mike Bloomberg. I did a lot of work with uh, Mike Bloomberg before this um, and leading into this on a project, as Amy said, called the Risky Business Project, which was co-chaired by Hank Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary, um, by Tom Steyer back when he was at Farallon Capital, and then also by Mike Bloomberg with a number of people on that board, um, including former CEOs from Cargill, Caterpillar, um, Walmart and another number of other companies. We worked, Xerox, we worked together to basically do a two-part thing back in 2014 and through 2017, which was to build out a very robust model of what physical climate impacts would look like in the United States at a granular county level uh, of data. Um, I said last night we used about 20 terabytes of data on that project. Very granular. I'll show you some maps in a minute. And then we also then looked at what does that mean for specific sectors of the economy, including energy demand as well as agriculture and coastal property. That work, uh, we in that work really, really focused on physical climate risk. The Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which has brought this idea of risk in climate change and thinking about it from an investor standpoint to kind of the global conversation, really lays out three kinds of risks that I think are important to keep in mind. Transition risk, which is what's the risk that you don't transition? What's the risk that as we transition globally to a low-carbon economy, regionally to a low-carbon economy, that your company is not transitioning or the companies you're investing in are not transitioning? That risk can be stranded assets. It can be um, just technology slowdown. It can be a bunch of things. It can be just being eclipsed by other companies. I always think of it as you could be either MCI or AT&T when the cell phone came in, right? I mean, um, I'm old enough to remember the MCI long-distance calls. Um, MCI did not make it. They didn't diversify. They didn't go into cell phones. Um, AT&T did. Uh, physical risk, which I'll talk about a bit more, which is really the physical climate risk on things like supply chains and your core business operations. And then, of course, um, there's, there's litigation risk, which is the third one. It's not up here, but it's the third obvious one. So in the Risky Business Project, we looked a lot at uh, physical climate risk and 
you know, this is a map, it kind of shows you the granularity. You can see that, that the individual spots here are all county level. This is just a heat map for the course of essentially from the day the report came out in 2014 all the way through the end of century. It's for the baby in the first slide is a baby born the day the report came out. So it's their lifetime basically. Um, and you'll see in this, um, you might think to yourself, oh, you know, the Northwest looks pretty good in this heat map, for sure compared to places like the Southeast. That is true. I'll get into more specific Idaho risks that aren't really captured in this map, but I did want to put a pin here and say, the fact that the Northwest looks pretty good in these heat maps is an opportunity for this state. There are companies all over the place, look, and companies and states looking for manufacturing in particular that happens in states where carbon, there is low carbon energy sources and where the extreme weather is not going to be a big deal. Those kinds of companies are starting to look at the Northwest in particular and also the upper Midwest um, as they're thinking about expanding operations. So it's something to think about as an opportunity. But it's not entirely an opportunity. It's also a risk. Uh, you know very well um, that wildfires are one big risk. I'll talk about that. But essentially, this Idaho may not be as warm as some places, but it's getting warmer. We're going in this state from an average of five days a year over 95 degrees to between 18 to 42 additional days over 95 degrees every year by end of century. That's a big range because like with everything in climate change, it depends on how much we emit and emit into the atmosphere in that time period. But you could see up to, that's a likely range of up to 42 additional days. So up to about 45, 46 days over 95. That's a significant difference for this, this state. So this, the, the numbers are just going up. This is from Climate Central. That has specific economic impacts. Um, one of them is labor productivity. For those of you who are in utilities or in other outdoor activities, forestry, um, some transportation, some manufacturing where you're in agriculture with outdoor workers, this is an impact you will see. As those days get hotter, it's much harder to do that work during the day. Uh, and that's something that we found in our analysis was one of the biggest economic impacts to the United States was the decline in labor productivity. But you're probably more used to thinking about wildfires, which are, of course, already happening, already an impact you're feeling, significant impact on this state, not only the, for the timber industry, which is $2.3 a year to the state, but also, of course, to disruptions in energy supply um, and the grid. Um, agriculture, I won't talk about too much. I don't think there's too many people in the room who are ag-focused people, but agriculture, extreme heat does lead to agricultural yield increases in some crops, but decline in a number of others. The state, of course, ships all over the world. Um, when it comes to products, that's another economic impact. And then, of course, I think one of the biggest ones for this group, which is um, decreased snowpack, which we're pretty confident about. We're pretty confident about the modeling that's about heat and heat-related impacts. The modeling on precipitation is much harder and much less clear. What I can tell you is that there will be more or less. There will be a lot more rain or a lot less rain. It's all extreme. I can't tell you which way it'll go consistently, but it will be more extreme. And snowpack, we do see decreasing. Um, what that means in a state like this is that summer water availability is lower when that snowpack is lower. Uh, that obviously has a huge impact on um, hydropower in particular and the variability of hydro resources. That's something you'll hear more about from Idaho Power, but this is um, Idaho Power's most recent sustainability report with an adaptation section, which actually calls this out for the first time, saying we are looking at snowpack data, we are looking at precipitation data, we are trying to figure out how to better predict that, but also we're starting to think about how to potentially build up and back up the system um, in order to deal with that variability. And I think that's another big opportunity for this state in terms of backing up that system with, with more distributed renewables, for instance, which are less susceptible to these big extreme events.
The last thing I'm going to say is just on a couple other opportunities I want to highlight. Uh, you know, this state has um, is very land-based and place-based. A lot of the resources are natural resources. That that means the state is at, is at risk from physical impacts, but it also leads to, to opportunity. A couple things I just always like to highlight. One is cross-laminated timber. It's um, as the world, and in particular the Western market, California and the other Northwest states, decide to move from high carbon um, products like steel and concrete into things like cross-laminated timber, it opens up a lot of market potential for Idaho. I think there's opportunity for this state to lead on that issue. You're already one of the first states manufacturing it. There's a lot of opportunity in energy, particularly, as I just said, in diversifying the energy base, in thinking about storage, as you'll hear a lot more about, as a key piece of that. And then at some point, we may actually have a Western interconnected grid. California just just passed a law requiring 100% clean, clean energy by 2045. They are going to have to get that from somewhere. There's a lot of opportunity um, in your access and proximity to the Western markets, as well as to the Pacific Rim through the Western ports. So I'm going to leave it, I think, at that. This is just Hank Paulson being um, inspirational about how we can solve problems. I will say just one last thing about Hank, which is that he, um, he's been on TV a lot because it's the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis, as I'm sure you all know. He was just on Bloomberg News, and I would watch this if you have a chance, talking about the crisis. And someone asked, and they asked him about climate change, and which he identified as the next big crisis. And he said, the thing is that unlike the housing bubble, we, couldn't see, we can see climate impacts coming decades away, and we need to be preparing for it. It's easier than it was then to prepare. So I think that's just worth thinking about as you're doing business and, and planning. And that's my email if you want to get in touch with me and our websites. And there's tons more information. And I'm going to stop there. Oh, and I'm not going to take away the microphone. Thank you. And I'm going to call up Todd Haynes. And Todd will get you mic'd up here. Todd is the Renewable Energy Project Manager at Power Engineers. Todd's experience in storage, actually, I thought this was very interesting, uh, in energy storage, which is so important as we talk about the future of the grid. Um, Todd's experience with energy storage started in 2004 uh, when he was completing his mechanical engineering master's at Boise State um, and was looking at how to make wind power more efficient and realized the integration of the grid was a critical issue and storage had to play a critical role. So we've got the right guy for the job to join us here today. Thanks, Todd, very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I appreciate it, and thanks, everyone, for coming out. What I want to do today is um, I, I definitely want to talk a lot about the opportunities because we have a ton of opportunity in Idaho. But before we get into the opportunities, I just kind of want to set the stage by talking about the transition of the uh, electric industry, that transition's going on right now, and um, I just kind of want to lay it out a little bit. So uh, before I do that, though, a little background on Power Engineers. Um, Power is a local company. Uh, we were formed here in, uh, actually in Pocatello in 1976 when a couple of engineers from Idaho Power decided that they wanted to strike out on their own. Um, and as you can see, we've grown quite a bit in 40 plus years. Um, now we've got more than 30 offices across the nation, 3,000 employees. So what I want to point out by this though is that we work for virtually every large utility in the nation. And because we work for virtually every large utility in the nation, we've got a really unique perspective on the energy transition that's going on across the country. And so I just kind of want to bring some of that perspective into, uh, into the conversation. So where, where are we coming from? This is kind of a high-level picture of the 20th century grid. In the 20th century grid, it was pretty much one way. So we had a big centralized power plant that was located outside of town somewhere. It might have been 50, 100 miles outside of town. 
That could have been coal, nuclear, hydro, but a big, large plant made all the electricity, sent it in on high voltage transmission lines, and these would be, you know, maybe tens or hundreds of miles. Once it gets into town, goes to a substation where it steps down in voltage from high voltage to medium voltage, and then these are the distribution lines. And this is what we see around town. The distribution lines bring the electricity to our homes, to our businesses, and then you can see that down here, and uh, it steps down in voltage again to, to a, a lower voltage that we use in our homes and businesses. And we'll just point out that at Power, we design all of these systems. So we're very familiar with all of these systems and, again, um, how they're transitioning around the country. Comparatively, the old system, compared to where we're going, was much simpler to control. It was simpler to control because the utilities just needed to forecast what, how much electricity we were going to use. They forecasted load every day. They knew, okay, how much, you know, it's Monday morning at 8 o'clock. We know how much you're going to use. We know how much you're going to use on Saturday, Sunday, whatever. And so by forecasting only the load, they were able to generate the electricity that we needed when we needed it. And they kept the, ele the electric grid in balance. And it was a much simpler proposition then. Now we transition to the 21st century. So this is where we're going. To a certain extent, I, all of these various elements exist in various parts of the country. I don't think there's anywhere in the country yet where it's all there and it's all working together. But this is the, the 21st century grid, and it's you know, going to look a lot different than the 20th century grid. Um, so we still have the centralized generation. Our centralized generation now includes large utility-scale wind and solar. And we see that in Idaho, and we see that around the country. So you've got large-scale wind and solar that are connected in at high voltage still coming in and being brought into town. Um, we've also got storage. And you can see I've got storage throughout here. Storage is not always batteries. Um, there's a lot of different types of storage technology. Just take this icon to be some type of storage. And we can talk more about the different uh, forms of storage later and their pros and cons. But as you can see here, we've, we can have uh, utility scale. There can be storage located with your, with your large PV plants, PV solar. Then it comes down to the distribution grid. In the distribution grid, now we might have some neighborhood storage. And then when you get down to the individual consumer level, we have solar on rooftops, we have some storage, and all of this now is working together. So before, we had one-way power flow coming out to the end user. Now we've got power flowing in multiple directions. So you might have uh, at a house, you've got somebody generating a lot of electricity during the middle of the day, but they're not home using that electricity. So that electricity is now flowing back to the grid. At the same time, there's electricity flowing into town. So it's, it's coming in multiple directions, and, um, and it becomes more, it's just a much more complicated system now. We can see the benefits from this, though, across the grid by helping to maintain the voltage and the frequency that the grid needs to, to stay in balance. And then on the home level and the business level, you've got storage, and that has different benefits again. So maybe a residential customer, they're generating electricity in the day, come park their electric vehicle at night, plug it in, and, and they can use that battery to charge back their EVs. Uh, industrial customers, they're typically paying a demand charge. Uh, if you're not familiar with a demand charge, it's they pay for how much electricity they use plus whatever the peak demand is over the course of the month. And so if they've got storage and solar, they can lower their demand charges by um, using the, utilizing the stored energy when all their pumps come on or when all their big load is, and so they can reduce their costs. So you can see that the storage has different benefits across the, 
the grid and different users realize those benefits in different ways. Again, this is more complicated to control um, just because there's more now to think about. We're not, the utility company is no longer only thinking about the load and how much load are we gonna need tomorrow. We're now thinking about what's the, what's the wind gonna do tomorrow? Is there gonna be cloud cover? Are these solar panels gonna be available or not? You know, that's a big question. If you've got a whole lot of solar, rooftop solar, but none of it's available, then that doesn't really help the grid. So there's a lot more complication here. And again, I'll point out that power works on virtually all of this stuff except the residential. We don't work with any residential. So, but we are very familiar with uh, the other elements. Another key element to the grid of the 21st century is microgrids. Microgrids are kind of just what it looks like. So if the power goes out, there's say there's an event, say there's a storm, um, hurricane, a wildfire, whatever, the grid goes down, you still need to keep your, your critical loads, maybe this is a hospital, still needs to have power. So in the old days, we've had just diesel generators, um, and we still use diesel generators, but now we can also use uh, photovoltaics and we can use batteries and keep that um, power flowing to the critical load as long as it's needed um, until the power gets restored. So this is the most complicated slide, and by design. Um, the last couple slides I was depicting energy flowing. Now we're depicting uh, communication flows. And I've been kind of leading up to this by talking about how the grid was easier to control in the 20th century. 21st century, it's more complicated to control. And the reason is, if, you know, if you look at all of these, all these various elements that are now on the grid, think of them as instruments. Think of them as instruments. And if you've got a whole bunch of instruments and they're not playing together, it might sound like the first day of junior high school band. But if you get all of your instruments playing together and you've got a good conductor leading them, now you turn it into a symphony. And if you get it playing together as a symphony, it all works well. And, um, and that is what this acronym is. As a good engineer, I have to throw out a new acronym, right? So DERMS is your acronym of the day. Distributed Energy Resource Management System. This is the conductor of the symphony. And so what, what's going on here is, is you've got all these different elements. So, you know, this might be a house, and you might have demand response, which is like in a, here in Idaho Power, we've got the AC cool credits. That's an example of de demand response. Maybe you've got an electric vehicle charge um, that needs to charge. You've got some solar on this business. And so these can be businesses or houses. This can be neighborhood scale, and then again, distribution and transmission. All of these various elements come with their own control system, right? And everybody's control system, oh, it's great, it's smart, it's plug and play, just plug it in and you're ready to go. Not true. Everybody's got a computer, everybody's heard that story, we know that it's not true, it doesn't work that way. So in order to make it work that way, that's what the, the idea of DERMS is, and it's a very complicated proposition, but you want all these individual elements that were built by different manufacturers, and they have their own different control systems, to communicate the same language, to play well together, and ultimately to help out the utility, whether it be Idaho Power or anybody else, to be able to integrate all these various resources and keep the lights on and give you the power when you need it. And so this is where a lot of innovation is going on right now. At Power, we work in this field. This is new to us. We are good at integrating utility scale. We've got a lot of experience with it, but just like everybody else, this is a new realm and this is kind of where all the innovation's going. And I think that's everything I had to say. Great, thank you. Thank you so much.
Uh, next, we have Kurt Myers. Kurt's Renewable Energy Manager over at Idaho National Laboratory. Long time working in this area of renewable energy, microgrids, and storage. Really excited to have INL with us. They're such an asset to our state to have that expertise. Uh, about a couple years ago, went over to INL to meet and realized that about a third of their budget is actually focused in this arena. So it's a really exciting opportunity that we have them here in Idaho for us. And they also work with local communities sometimes for free, as they did with our community on a digital electricity blueprint that's been really valuable to really understand our electricity system. So thanks, Kurt. Okay. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Amy. Um, I'm Kurt Myers, again, from the Idaho National Laboratory. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, you know, what some of our work there at the laboratory, what we get involved in. And uh, you'll see a lot of uh, parallels with what Todd was, was kind of talking about, getting into controls and systems integration and, and uh, you know, some of the characteristics of the types of systems that uh, we're trying to integrate. I'll also talk uh, uh, quite a bit about energy security and resiliency aspects, which is a big portion of, of the reason why we got involved in this type of work many, many years ago. And... Uh, you know, looking for opportunities in the future from Idaho, what we see is a lot of what we've been doing for, you know, 20 plus years with the military, we're starting to see happen in private industry and in utilities, and, and they're starting to, you know, consider some of the th same things that we've been uh, dealing with and thinking about for a lot of years with, with the military work. So uh, just a quick overview. I won't spend a lot of time on some of these, but just gives you a, a little bit of background. Uh, again, the INL is, is uh, one of the, the head nuclear laboratories at, uh, within the DOE system. And we have, you can see the, the blurb there talking about our advanced test reactor. There's been, I think, over 50 different reactors that have been put in to the laboratory over the years to research and develop new technologies for, for the nuclear space. Um, but I wanted to kind of focus on the, uh, the last couple bullets here. We're, we're one of only 10 multi-program national laboratories that, that's within the D Department of Energy system. And what that means is we work on a lot more things than just nuclear energy at our laboratory. And uh, in fact, in my area, I you know, cross over with the nuclear folks from time to time, but most of the time we're working on things totally different than, than nuclear energy. Uh, we're also the, uh, the largest DOE laboratory when you talk about our 890 square miles of, of federally owned property out on our desert site. Um, so a lot of space for, uh, for us, these R&D activities. There's also a lot of land management stuff that goes on out, out at the desert site. And really, our laboratory is performing work to support DOE's mission to ensure America's security and prosperity by addressing its energy, environmental, and nuclear challenges through transformative science and technology solutions. Uh, critical infrastructure test range. We have, we have our own. We're one of the few DOE laboratories that has our own um, power utility, um, Scoville Power and Light, and so we have um, engineers and, and linemen that operate and maintain uh, a 60-mile transmission loop around here, and then we have multiple substations and distribution systems. So down here, we actually have uh, taken some of that power systems infrastructure where they've taken out some of the older infrastructure and repurposed that into large power systems uh, test bed capability. So there's a lot of uh, Homeland Security work that goes on out there and uh, we're, we're positioning ourselves to take some of the, the smaller test bed things that we're doing in town and transition those to larger scale R&D systems out on the, the power grid test range. Some of the 
talking a little bit about some of our Department of Defense work. Um, you know, we're, t we're working in islanded power systems, energy and power, a lot of energy storage, uh, clean energy integration, uh, a lot of systems engineering, data, data science and analysis, advanced materials and, and systems. Uh, on the clean energy integration side of the, of the house, that's, that's where I work. We have work in hybrid energy systems, geothermal systems, uh, biofuels, electric vehicles, uh, electrification of, of transportation uh, systems, in engineering and renewable energy integration. Uh, in my group, we've been working in microgrids and renewable energy, you know, distributed energy systems for over 25 years now. Um, a lot of this work started on, you know, island grids where they had high-priced diesel, you know, generated electricity, bringing in wind, wind generation, solar generation, different types of storage systems, you know, water production for fresh water. And it's really, you know, mushroomed from there into a lot more activity in, in the, the microgrid space, not only on island grids, but, but on, uh, you know, grids within the continental U.S., uh, missions overseas. We're doing quite a bit of work with U.S. RCENT right now with the Army on uh, some of their energy systems over there and trying to, uh, to improve resiliency, improve the uh, capabilities of systems, and just get more diversity and, and manage costs and fuel usage in these systems is really what, what we're working on. You know, we not only work on renewables, we also dig into you know, natural gas generation systems, um, com combined heat and power systems, diesel, uh, battery storage, and so we're, we're looking at it from a perspective of, of security, resiliency, and availability to make sure that, uh, you know, that particular mission or that base is going to have power when they need it. And when you look at it from the, the, the perspective of their utility service, usually you're going to get, you know, upwards of three and a half to four nines of availability when you do a risk assessment calculation for the military. And for a lot of their missions, that's not good enough. They need backup generators, they need UPS systems. Um, and what we found over the years that backup diesel generators are not always the best solution. They're not always as reliable as you'd want them to be. And just adding more and more diesel generators doesn't cut it because then you don't have any diversity. What happens if something happens to your fuel supply chain? You can't get more diesel there. Um, and, you know, we've talked about putting in more storage. Well, you know, then you got to cycle through the fuel. Fuel goes bad. You can't just let it sit there forever. Um, so generally, they only have, you know, one, one to three days of storage on a base. Um, if they have a, a flight mission or something, they might have a lot more fuel around. But they're going to want to use that fuel for, you know, other missions besides just generating power in the event of a long-term outage. So we look at bringing in other resources like solar, wind, microhydro, um, you know, waste to energy, all kinds of different things to try to add to the diversity and be able to, for them to run for longer periods of time in the event that they have a catastrophic outage that takes them out for uh, the Army is looking at at least 14 days right now as their, as their general metric. So quick overview of, of microgrids. Um, what is a microgrid? It's an integrated energy system consisting of distributed generators, energy storage, and or flexible loads, which operates as a single autonomous grid, either in parallel to or islanded from an upstream utility or other power grid. So that's a good definition to keep in mind for microgrids. You know, really optimally manage distribu distributed generations and energy storage and responsive loads. You know, they can really 
uh, help you when you're when you're grid connected. You can use those for energy efficiency and economic, uh, you know, cost reductions for peak shavings, things like that. Um, and then when you get into abnormal situations, you you uh, use those to provide power when when the utility grid is is not there and available for you. Um, and when you start talking about the the economics of these systems, you really have to to look at more than just the, the energy savings, um, you know, the demand savings, things like that. Um, when we do it, these projects for the military, we get in and we assess you know, what's the cost that they incur when they do have an outage of, of different durations. And then we take that, we do a risk assessment and availability calculation, figure out how much improved they will be in terms of availability and then use that as part of the, the economic business case. And I think you're seeing more and more of that start to happen um, outside of the military to figure out what those values are. And, and the value has a very wide range. It depends on what your application is, uh, what your use case is. But um, we find in some of the DOD systems that sometimes that energy security value is worth way more than the energy and the demand um, savings that, you're, that you get from that project. So, just something to keep in mind that uh, you know that that type of resiliency and security can have a very high value assigned to it. it also improves your knowledge of your system. You know what your use is of, of energy, and uh, you get a better idea of how to how to optimize and become more efficient in your system operations. Kind of wanted to get into energy storage. That's that's been a big a big thing for us the last uh, five years or so. Um, really seeing that come into uh, into the realm of possibility in a lot of our systems now. It was kind of out of reach for, for quite a few years, but uh, now it's really coming into the wheelhouse and it's, it's uh, making things really exciting for microgrids and utility you know, integration and, and other aspects. So we're excited to, uh, to be involved in a lot of that work. We've, uh, at our laboratory, we do a lot of testing on different battery systems. Uh, we have one of the electric vehicle testing programs for DOE and Department of Transportation. So a lot of experience in, in testing different chemistries of batteries, different types of cells and, and modules. Todd mentioned there, there's lots of other types of energy storage systems, and, and we definitely consider those and, and uh, research those in, in our activities. Flywheels, supercapacitors. Uh, lots of interesting uh, technology trends in, in all those different spaces. Uh, right now, the costs for utility-scale energy storage, and, and we're talking, you know, kind of two to two to four hours, maybe five hours type of duration here. You know, you're, you're getting costs, getting down into the $450 to $600 a kilowatt hour range if you have a really, you know, large-scale project. Uh, we're thinking that it needs to get down to about $350 to $400 a kilowatt hour and have uh, 15 plus years of, of cycle life available uh, for, for this to really, really start taking off. And, and it's already, you know, it's already taking off. So it's getting very close to that. We've got a little bit of work to do in, in the cycle life capability or drive the cost down to where the module replacement, you know, at year seven to 10 still gets you to this, you know, end result life cycle cost number. Um, so that's why you're seeing such activities because it actually is getting close to that number. When you start getting medium and higher penetration levels of renewables and variable generation, that price is going to have to go down because you're going to have longer durations of storage. Um, but for the near term, when we're talking about peak shaving, you know, managing peak, peak power, ramping events, stuff like that, that's, 
that's kind of the number the number we're thinking. So, and I'll close it out there. Thank you. Great. Next, we have Mitch Colburn, who's with Idaho Power. Uh, Mitch has a major responsibility at Idaho Power, being in charge of uh, planning and operations, um, really looking. He's, it, as I love what your bio says, uh, leads an organization responsible for the energy future of the 1.2 million people that Idaho Power serves. So very big responsibility in leading the planning work there. And thank you so much for joining us, Mitch. Thank you, Amy. And um, Thank you for the invitation to be here today. Obviously, uh, very impressive uh, fellow panelists. Pretty exciting, focusing on the future. You know, that's my role within Idaho Power, the organization I'm over. And so, just hearing, you know, things we're seeing today and setting up for the future. That's that's the realm I work in, and, and frankly, it's what really kind of gets me excited day to day. Brings me into work. So what's what's tomorrow look like for us all? Um, so I am going to talk about kind of where we are today. So before we get to the future, I want to give some context to where we are today um, with our energy mix, and then talk about some things Idaho Power is doing, starting to incorporate some of these new technologies and some things we see for the future, and then really focus on the future. You know, what do we see coming, what's next, and how we're going to do this collaboratively. So just starting off, so Idaho Power, you know, our decisions um, kind of are through three lenses. So we have cost or affordability, we have impact on the environment, and then um, our customers. So, you know, we don't have a business without customers. You know, we are all um, consume electricity, um, but we definitely have to keep in mind customers and a lot of um, customer focus, at least, you know, some of the things we're touching on today was the reliability element of our customers. So we want to provide a reliable service at an affordable cost. Um, and obviously keep an eye on our environment as we do that. So those are the three lenses. Um, keep those in mind as I kind of walk through my slides. So I'll start with environment. Um, this is a typical or average U.S. utility is 65% um, fossil fuel in their energy mix. You compare that to Idaho Power, our fuel mix, roughly 50% uh, hydro, another 18% percent. Um, we call this long-term purchases, but that's um, because we, um, when we purchase uh, the contracts, this is your hydro, your wind, your solar, we have some geothermal, but we purchase those from third parties, so we call them long-term purchases, and we sell the energy credits associated with those, the renewable energy credits associated with those, to the benefit of the customer. So collectively, 68% clean, so non-carbon um, emitting. Compare that, so we hear a lot about California and their ambitious goals. Um, you compare Idaho, well, Idaho and Idaho Power at 68% clean, average uh, the residential rate um, of roughly nine to 10 cents. And then you compare it to California, 44% clean with a rate of 17 cents. And so when we talk about affordability, it means different things in different states, you know, so we, we start talking about adoption of some of the storage technologies and some of these new technologies. You know, affordability in one place is different than affordability in another. Um, so just want to provide that context. Also want to talk about where we are today with CO2. So compared to 2005 levels, Idaho Power uh, seen a 47% reduction in CO2 emissions. And 
Today we don't have any in-state coal-fired plants. Um, Idaho Power, we have a partial interest in three, uh, one in Oregon, one in Nevada, one in Wyoming. We have plans to shut down two of those three, the, the, the plant in um, Oregon, and then we're actually going to exit the plant in Nevada in the next seven years. So two of our three um, we'll be out of in the next seven years. And one of the primary focuses of our um, current uh, resource planning process is looking at our Wyoming plant and looking at the economics there and the potential future of it. So obviously focused on the environment, carbon affordability. So I showed residential rates, how we compared with um, California. This is commercial rates. Um, wanted to keep the context. We're talking about Idaho economy, um, trying to provide kind of the business context. So this is how commercial customer costs compare um, with some of the surrounding states, see California, Portland, Salt Lake City, and then our Boise rates, 30% um, below um, national average there. So um, when we talk about, you know, Idaho economy, we talk about Idaho, the state, you know, competitive advantage, you know, um, to me, and I'll speak for Idaho Power too, but our affordability, our electricity cost is a major competitive advantage. And so we're certainly trying to keep that, you know, we work tirelessly um, to keep our costs low. And certainly, you know, that's a, uh, the focus of our long-term planning is to keep, keep costs affordable for our customers and keep that competitive advantage. Just real quick, I want to make a, I guess a plug. So this year, Idaho Power, 7% rate decrease for residential customers. Um, so just want to remind folks there kind of where we're, we are today. Things are, things are looking good. Reliability, so getting to customer satisfaction and where we are today. Uh, last five year, our average, so an average customer of Idaho Power will experience 1.4 outages per year. Kate, unfortunately, was in a hotel last night downtown that experienced an outage last night. So she got one, doesn't even live here. So I don't know how that figures into the stats, but so she had her outage. You got 0.4 more to go, Kate, unfortunately. But um, actually 2018, uh, we're trending towards 1.2. So just keep that in, in context. You know, this is how many outages we see. You know, this is something, you know, no, any number up here is probably higher than we'd like to be. This is something we're always looking to improve. Um, that in other terms, um, our services, our services, electricity is there for our customers 99, over 99.9% .9 of the time. You know, so we start, we start from a good place. I mean, there's always room for improvement, um, but just want to provide that context. And so more about some things we're doing at Idaho Power, kind of focusing more or largely on the new technologies in the future. So non-wires opportunities. So we have processes in place where traditional infrastructure upgrades, you know, if we need to upgrade equipment, um, you know, we upgrade wires, we upgrade transformers. We have processes in place to look at application of solar or storage or some of these new technologies in lieu of you know, traditional upgrades. And one example of that, this is um, a solar array at, at the end of a feeder. We call it end of feeder solar. So feeder's a distribution line. So this is in a remote area south of Fairfield, um, Idaho. Uh, we found a pretty unique application where instead of upgrading wires, uh, we're able to put in um, a solar array. And the output of that array timed, was timed with uh, the period of time where we had the reliability issue, where we experienced a peak load and had some um, 
So to improve the voltage, instead of putting in new wires, we used a solar facility. So that's just one example. Um, again, we have processes in place where we're looking at these for all, as, as alternatives to additional upgrades. So that's solar. Batteries, we're also looking at battery storage opportunities. Um, there's a small distribution substation in Oregon uh, where we just recently went out to bid. So we designed, we had the traditional upgrade. We said, wait a minute, you know, we think we could potentially uh, use storage to um, offset the peak demand. So reduce that peak demand to where you wouldn't need to upgrade the transformer. Um, this is coming close. It penciled out economically when we put the numbers together based on what we're seeing for some of the market prices for storage. Unfortunately, some of the bids are coming back in higher than we forecasted. So as of the last couple weeks, kind of re-looking at if this is going to pencil out um, specifically. But the takeaway um, doesn't change that, you know, there, there are opportunities and we're starting to see some, you know, as we see prices um, come down. So there's certainly opportunities, potential opportunities in the future. Grid modernization, I thought Todd did a great job kind of talking about the system of the future, two-way power flows, and what that takes is um, you know, two-way communication on our distribution system where we haven't had it traditionally. Um, smart inverters, smart meters, you know, we have to have everything talking to each other in the system of the future. And we've started um, taking steps um, in that direction, starting to put in um, communica communication infrastructure on our distribution system. Kate talked about this. So um, at a grid level, at uh, the Western system level, utilities working together to um, better integrate. So this is a map of the Western energy imbalance market. These are the participants. And the focus of the energy imbalance market is so for all that variation within an hour, so you go into an hour and we have this much, we expect this much wind, this much solar, this much load, inevitably it's different. Um, you know, it's a forecast. It's going to be off. And so within the hour, utilities are able to pool together and serve that um, deviation together at a lower cost than they would individually. So looking at a grid level, at a Western interconnection level, ways to keep cost, customer costs low and ability to integrate um, renewables. You know, we had the balanced affordability environment, customer, um, you know, we do have customer choice. If you want 100% renewable energy. Uh, we have a what's called a green power program. You can subscribe, and for a one cent per kilowatt hour premium, you can have 100% renewable energy if you so choose. And so we have a couple thousand customers subscribed to this program. I just want to make everyone aware that there is choice in your service. Future, um, we see. So Idaho, I think we all know that's one of the fastest growing states in the nation. So with that, you know, we see increasing customer demand. I also mention our plans for our coal-fired facilities. So increasing demand, reduced supply, so we're going to be taking units offline, um, collectively drives the need for future resources. And so um, that's a heavy focus uh, of my organization. Um, uh, we have a formal process every other year called our Integrator Resource Plan. Um, I see a couple of our advisory council members on our resource um, advisory council on, here in the room today. But um, 
I would um, encourage folks to, to pay attention to this or get involved or come to our meeting. Our, our next meeting is actually tomorrow. And in fact, one of the major focus, one of the topics will be our hydro forecast and looking at different climate change futures. And so I think Kate teed it up well. You know, um, a little teaser is that we're seeing um, in most models more water over the course of the year but at different times, you know, so more in the winter and spring, potentially less in the summer. Um, so that's, I don't think that's bad. You know, I don't think that's necessarily good. I think it's just different, you know, and that's just something that we're constantly evaluating the future. And then, like how Kate characterized it well, um, there's opportunities, you know, they're not necessarily risks, they're opportunities that exist there. But and I think I'll just conclude there and say, you know, we see a lot of opportunities with some of the new technologies, you know, for us, for Idaho Power. Um, it's about the right approach. It's about the right time. You know, it's about making sure that we balance affordability, reliability, and the environment. Um, but we're certainly excited to be doing this, and this is, you know, our job, what we're doing every day. Um, so appreciate being in the room. Looking forward to some more discussion. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you so much, Mitch. So our speakers have gotten us off to a great start, a lot of information there for us to dig into. Um, sometimes we hear people talk about this summary of what you just heard from everybody is this transformation. There's, it's, our grid is becoming decentralized, so more options, more choices, and then it's becoming decarbonized, so reducing the greenhouse gas emissions, the carbon content of our energy system. So that's more the larger scale renewables we were talking about. Um, decentralizing the grid is more microgrids, distributed generation that we've been talking about, as well as home and business on-site systems. And then people talk about it becoming digitalized, so more modernized, digitalized, so that you can have better communications operations. Um, I'm just going to start with one question to the panel, and then uh, really going to be looking to you guys to get your questions ready. Um, as we talk about this transformation, uh, where I was wondering if you could talk, just give an example, one or more of you, of where you're seeing this transformation being done well in a state, where they're really being strategic about what are their assets, how do they deploy these new technologies to maximize the job creation, the cost savings, and the reliability to their system. So who's getting it right out there? If you have any examples, whether it's a community or a state, I'd love to hear if any of our panelists have answers. I'm not sure if there's any state that's really doing it well right now. Overall, Overall yeah, I I think there's some examples of of uh, you know some communities that are that are doing some pretty interesting projects and uh, and you know some utilities that are really kind of you know getting out on the cutting edge a little bit, you know, and then and then the military there's there are some good examples in the military of of some locations where they're where they're making some pretty good progress in in terms of you know trying to improve their their uh, renewable energy and their resiliency uh, aspects and in integrating some of the controls challenges that we were talking about. Um, I, I mean, I think the key about this question is that everyone's doing it differently because every state has extremely different resources and extremely different energy demand and economics. And the places where I've seen the best work done are places that are not segregating out energy and environment as a different issue than economic development, but actually combining them. You may remember this in Michigan about when Je uh, Jennifer Granholm was, was governor there, she combined her economic and labor and economic department and energy department into one 
because of the state being so energy intensive, but also just having all of these issues that they had to figure out from a kind of economic development perspective. I think that's a really smart idea because you start to walk down those paths together. The place I'm going to point to, it's not in the U.S., though, is um, I do a lot of work in Japan, and Japan's really interesting because for them, these issues are about national security in a very big way because of nuclear plants being on the coast within North Korea missile range, as well as after the tsunami, a bunch of concerns about nuclear, as well as a huge amount of renewable power availability and a shrinking population. So all these things they're putting together in the mix of how to do their sort of next generation of, um, of, of development, and they're spending a lot of time on grid integration, on microgrids, and on thinking about ways to be more secure um, given, given those dynamics. And I think that's important because they're really integrating, again, all of those different elements of geography, economics, security, and not just segregating this out into sort of its own little pocket of conversation. Um, let's see, I, I think I've got a few examples to talk about. With the, the last slide that I put up was about the control systems and the management systems, and I think uh, we're seeing that actually kind of taken off mostly in, in California, and actually in Southern California. Southern California Edison and SDG&E both have good programs that are um, really trying to take that to the next scale where they've got local aggregators. And what an aggregator does is say you've got 10 houses in a neighborhood that all have rooftop PV, and the utility wants to see it more as a centralized resource. So they'll aggregate together uh, the output from those rooftop PVs and then deliver to the utility instead of a whole bunch of two kilowatt systems, here's 20 kilowatts, which is still small for utility. But that's what the aggregators are doing in case, you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with them. But there's a lot uh, going on in California around the aggregation and a lot with private business. You know, that's really being driven by, the, like I said, there's a lot of innovation there. As far as just large-scale renewables, nobody does it like Texas. Um, Texas went from zero to most in about 10 years. Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting about Texas, they've got so much wind on their line. The reason is they were generating a lot of electricity with natural gas, and then somebody had the bright idea. They're like, why do we want to do this? Why don't we export the natural gas out to those other states, and we'll generate electricity with, yeah. with our wind, and we'll keep that electricity here and, and make money. And so it's a big money-making opportunity on texas just really quick they they also have really low curtailment rates so texas is a leader globally on the amount of wind they waste so whereas in china where i've done a lot of work it's about a 40 35 to 40 percent curtailment rate for wind um, a lot of those systems just aren't hooked up to the grid i'm sure you've all read about this but also they're just not being balanced they're not being integrated well texas has between a one and a two percent curtailment rate most of the year yeah so and, and, and they did that as a, it was a state choice. And the, the state, they, they built, there was a lot of wind in West Texas. There's a lot of load where the cities are, the populations in East Texas, Houston and Dallas. And they built this, they built these, they're called Cres lines, or um, large high voltage lines um, that bring all that wind, of electricity generated by the wind in the West out to the population. And, and so they've really done a great job with that. And, and like I say, they're, you know, they're selling all their natural gas out of state now and just making more money. Um, Another one, though, that I want to bring up is um, especially about the microgrids uh, back east. So remember Superstorm Sandy a few years ago? Um, there's a lot of solar. There's a lot of rooftop solar in New Jersey and New York. And with the, the policies, how they have traditionally been, you could only generate electricity with your rooftop solar. 
if the grid was energized. And once the grid went down for some reason, then you had to stop generating electricity, and it's a safety reason. So if you know somebody from Idaho Power goes out and needs to fix a line somewhere, they don't want electricity from your house being pushed onto the grid because you can hurt somebody. So um, what, what they realized after several days of not having electricity back east in New York and New Jersey, and they have all this rooftop solar, and they couldn't use it, and people are like, why do I have that on my roof if I can't generate electricity with it? At the same time, like Kurt mentioned, Kurt mentioned, you know, your diesel generator is great if you got diesel. But once they ran out of fuel and they couldn't get the fuel out because, you know, there was just the whole, the whole system shut down. And so there were days when the microgrids weren't working, the critical infrastructure wasn't there. And so they've actually changed policy now in New Jersey, and I'm not sure if they've done it in New York as well, but I know they've done it in New Jersey where now you have uh, in, we, what we've called anti-islanding. Now they have islanding, and islanding is kind of like that microgrid that I showed where you can detach and operate on your own. And so um, I think that's, I, I think other states are gonna follow that. But you know that was something where it, it was really driven by a big climate event, and they said, well, this is crazy. We should use that solar on our roof. We paid for it, <laughs> you know, so. So one of our first questions uh, is, has Idaho Power uncovered in its early smart grid implementation new opportunities for non-wires grid solutions such as solar, wind, and batteries? So beyond the examples that you provided here, um, has that helped you all identify some new opportunities? So we're constantly looking. Um, there's nothing in the hopper now. What, what we found is a lot of these opportunities are so unique. I mean, you have to have the right I mean, it's like the right profile at the right time to be served by the, the resource. Um, what we are doing, though, and actually Andres is in the room that's done some of this modeling, is you know we are, we are trying to get an idea of when. You know, we've looked at different applications of storage, and just like Kurt, you know, like I actually really enjoy when Kurt's up here sharing costs because that's really informative to us, and it gives us an idea as we do look out to the future, but. Um, Specific to the question, um, nothing identified right now, um, but certainly see more opportunities as, as costs uh, decline. Well, on a related question then, there's a lot of questions around storage and the cost of storage, which mm -hmm. Kurt did talk about, and um, we are seeing it really come down quickly. Um, what is it that's gonna help get storage there? Um, there, we of course have federal funding for more kind of R&D, commercialization, reduce risk for those early deployments. Is it policy? Is it just we just need to continue to acquire it in places where it's more expensive and therefore more cost-effective now, and then it'll just bring the price down as we get to scale? Does anybody have any thoughts about what we need to be doing and what we should be asking our policymakers to do to help get that storage so it can help enable more of these technologies to come on faster? I want to hand it to Kurt. But I, I guess I, I, do, I do want to go back to just kind of the, the difference between Idaho and, say, California. I mean, you look at, like, what's affordable here versus what's affordable in other places. And, you know, we're monitoring. You know, we're seeing some of that play out in these other states. Um, so in Idaho, we do um, seemingly have the luxury, based on our existing structure and, you know, the resources we have in place and our balanced fuel uh, energy mix, um, to, to kind of see some things happen and sit back and, um, and, and wait, you know, wait for it to be a good, a good time for us. Yeah, I, th I think it's a, it's a mix of, of, of scale, you know, and, and selling more systems, but it's also 
you know, you, you got to do the, the research work and invest in that as well and invest in some of the things that, that are looking more promising, you know, that, that aren't, you know, we, we kind of have to do a mix and a balance of you don't want to invest in too much stuff that's 25 years down the road. You still want to invest in that, but, you know, maybe that's a 5% of your overall R&D investment, uh, you know, and balancing that, that investment into, into what makes sense, you know, from a business case perspective. Um, but, uh, you know, definitely scaling up the, the electric vehicle market is really a big, is a big um, driver. So buy an electric vehicle. <laughs> the more people buy electric vehicles and the more batteries they produce and they start driving costs down, you know, that's one of it. Also, these, these early implementations by utilities, you know, that's driving demand and that's going to drive more production and that's going to drive costs down. And you're also starting to see some, some diversion a little bit between the electric vehicle battery market and the, the, the utility use market because those are really different um, you know, use cases and, you know, on the utility side, I talked about cycle life. We'd like to have a lot more cycle life available in the electric car. That's not, you know, so much the case. Um, and energy density is super important in the car, but not so much in the, in the utility space. Um, so, you know, we're starting to see some diversion there and, and uh, that's going to, you know, when we, we start seeing more applications and more purchases within, within the microgrids and utilities, you're going to start things to see things scale up. Just a couple things on California, um, two of which I have to just correct Mitch on since I do a lot of work there and I live there. So um, one is that our, our rates are high, but California has among the lowest bills in the nation. So if you actually look at the, what the consumer pays, which is what the consumer cares about, I know this is not what the utility cares about, but the consumer cares about the bill looks like we have very strong efficiency programs and very, very low bills, even given higher temperatures um, and more air conditioning use in the last year. So that's just an important point about rates. It's important to look at both those things. Um, also, just a clarification that the bill that just passed, SB 100, is not a 100% renewable bill, is 100% clean bill. And that is important. That was very important in the passage of that bill. And it's just, we don't know exactly what that will mean, but it's important just to know that. So um, going forward. But the last thing about California, I, I do a lot of work with, with investors. Um, and I am starting to see a lot of interest from the investment, including the venture investment community on batteries. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is the EV market, and it's just exciting to people. People like it, like the electric vehicle market. It's more interesting to a lot of um, angel investors in particular than you know, large-scale utility applications. But also, California has a solar mandate. I mean, a solar, not a solar mandate. We have that, too. But we have a, um, a storage mandate. Mm -hmm. And the storage mandate has led a lot of people to see a market in the state that they, that's sort of a guaranteed market in the state, which has led to a lot more money flowing into this space. So I do think that's important to kind of signal from the state level that this is a priority. And I would just say that in Idaho, it's an important note when you talked about the efficiency and the fact that overall California has lower bills because of their efficiency regulations. And in Idaho, I believe we actually rolled back our efficiency requirements for our buildings. So that actually makes us pay higher bills, even though we have lower per kilowatt hour prices we actually end up paying more because our buildings are less efficient. So when we look at this, we have to look at the whole picture of not just our cost per kilowatt hour, but do we have good efficiency for our buildings, whether it's commercial or residential codes. Go ahead. Um, just want to add a little bit more about um, what what we need to do to, to see more um, implementation of, of storage. And um, I agree with everything Kurt said about, um, about the R&D, so I won't repeat it. And I think that policy matters a lot. Um, 
Kate's right that you know California they've uh, they've got some uh, storage mandates, um, so that is obviously driving. In states where there aren't mandates, it's really difficult because uh, in order for a utility to pay for any large asset, any large new generator line, whatever, they, they want to rate base it, meaning they want to pass the rates on to you and have you pay for it. And that makes sense. I mean, I want them to do it too. But in order to rate base it, you need to get the Public Utilities Commission to approve it. Public Utilities Commissions in states like Idaho and, and states that don't have, like most states, I would say, don't really have experience yet with storage. And so they don't understand storage. They, Public Utilities Commissions, if, if you think back to my first slide about the old grid, they, that's their viewpoint. That's, that's what they understand. And there's two types of assets that a utility owns, a generator and a line. And those are the two things. And if it's not a generator or a line, the Public Utilities Commission doesn't know what to do with it. Storage is neither, because storage at times acts like a generator when it's providing electricity to the grid. At times it acts like a load when it's pulling energy off the grid because there's you know, maybe more solar being produced than is needed at the time. And so a lot of Public Utility Commissions around the nation are struggling trying to figure out what do we do with this asset? How do we rate base it? We can address the cost, we can know the cost because we're gonna go out and get three bids and go, okay, this is the lowest bid, this is how much it's gonna to cost to install this. The value is a much harder thing to quantify because we talk about in storage stacked values. There's the value of energy arbitrage, which is essentially buy low and sell high. There's a value of, of uh, ancillary services, keeping the frequency uh, where it needs to be, keeping the frequency in balance, keeping the voltage in, in balance, um, spinning reserves, so if uh, a generator over here goes down, can you quickly ramp up this generator over here to make sure that there's still enough electricity on the grid? All of these things, uh, there's value associated with it, but it's really hard to quantify that until we get to the point where we start using it, we start understanding it more, and we start realizing that, well, you can't, we can do all of these things, but we can't necessarily do it all at the same time. So how do we quantify that? And one thing that is nice about having a state like California with the mandates out there, they are starting to understand it, they are figuring it out, um, and they're certainly not getting it right immediately, but they're figuring it out and they're learning and gaining experience with it. So Great. I think the policy matters, and we can talk about FERC 841 later, anyone who wants to. Okay, quick, quick, Kurt, and then I'm gonna, I've got two. I'll add one more questions. thing, uh, policy matters, but uh, markets matter too. You know, su yeah, <laughs> supply and demand, and uh, mm -hmm. and just markets, market mechanisms in general. We're, we've done a lot of these projects now with the military, where we're putting in batteries, we're putting in microgrids, and we're a lot of times really hamstrung on what we can do. You know, for use cases on some of these assets, if we had market mechanisms to exchange services back and forth with the utility, mm -hmm. we could really make a lot better business case on these systems and and get get more deployed. So you're saying when the military's not using those assets, being able to actually bring them into the grid and having that yeah. relationship you between use them for the other grid military services assets, exactly. and having a market mechanism to be mm -hmm. able to do that back and forth. Great. We're extremely limited in market mechanisms right now with, with a lot of these systems. We had uh, two sets of questions uh, around base, a couple baseload sources that are more traditionally thought of baseload sources, hydro and nuclear. Uh, so in addition to the conversation about renewables and the important role of storage, for renewables, but also overall grid services you've just been talking about. Hydro, um, we had questions around the climate impacts on hydro, how is it being addressed by Idaho Power, batteries, pumping. Uh, someone asked, um, 
given our large hydroelectric base, they'd expect more pump storage conversations. Should we be using it more as storage? Does climate change impacts make it less predictable and therefore less potentially usable as storage? And then also, many states don't count hydro in their renewables portfolio standards. So as they're reaching 100% clean energy, is large hydro included? And they were wondering from an environmental standpoint, should it be? So hydro questions. Well, you, Mitch. Oh, me. I'm up here alone on that one, huh? Um, to the pump storage, and maybe Amy jump in if I'm missing part of the sure, question sure. too, but I'll tackle the pump storage first. Um, it is something we look at. There's been some sites proposed, developers that have come to Idaho Power with some proposed sites. It's something we're uh, monitoring. There's been some proposed sites in Washington and in California we're aware of. It is a resource we um, include. We uh, evaluate in our long-term planning process. You know, some of the obstacles, based on my understanding with pump storage, um, has been the permitting. You know, it's, it's challenging to go through the permitting process. And it is a pretty expensive. I mean, you're talking about a large resource. You know, the economics need to be there. Uh, generally, they need to be pretty large in size. Um, but it is something we look at. And certainly, you know, if we're talking about storage, we shouldn't exclude pump storage or other potential storage technologies in that. What was, I'm sorry, Amy. The, uh, the other one was around, uh, should hydro be included because of the environmental impacts on fisheries or others? Sure. Uh, I, I don't know that I'm the right person okay. to address that. All right. You know, I, I do know. Can I pick up on the pumped hydro a little bit? Yeah. So I am bullish on pumped hydro. I think pumped hydro is great. Um, obviously, right now, the hot topic is lithium ion batteries, but um, I firmly believe that there's a, a place for pumped hydro in our future. And, um, and we've got a place, you know, here in Idaho, I think we've got a lot of opportunity because there's a lot of pumping that already goes on. So where pumped hydro makes the most sense to me is if you can, those locations where there's already water being pumped up a hill, that water's being stored in a reservoir, typically for irrigation over the course of an irrigation season. Um, in San Diego, they've recently brought on a couple of pumped hydro projects where they were existing, exactly what I just said, except for they weren't for uh, irrigation. They were run by the San Diego County Water Authority. Um, and they, so they, they pumped the water up the hill, kept the water there to serve the community. What they did with these, uh, one project's built and the other one I think is under construction now. And they, um, they came to an agreement where they said, okay, every Sunday the water's, you know, Sunday at five o'clock, the water level must, is here. Next Sunday at five o'clock, the water level will be here. Keep ticking down one Sunday at a time over the course of the season. We don't care what you do with that between Sunday and Sunday. You can use it any way you want. And so they were using the water um, you know, to integrate renewables. There's a lot of wind in Southern California. And so they're using this existing asset. It was much easier to permit. The infrastructure is already there. What you're doing is essentially replacing a one-way pump with a variable frequency pump generator. and um, and, and there's opportunities for that here in Idaho. You know, I, I think we, we missed an opportunity at Bell Rapids where, you know, it would have been great to, to put something like that in at Bell Rapids, but instead all that infrastructure got torn out. So that's opportunity lost, but hopefully we don't squander more of those because we do have opportunity for pumped hydro here in Idaho. I've got two, so, so there's the nuclear question and then one more set of questions I do want to get to and then we're gonna wrap so we can have networking and more one-on-one -on -one conversations with our panelists. But uh, Related questions, what's the future need for next generation nuclear? Do we need it for baseload power? Is it too expensive to compete in the US? And then what's the timeline related, obviously? What's the timeline for commercial use of advanced small modular nuclear reactors? Mm -hmm. So 
you know, I think the the opportunity is definitely there. You know, the the big challenge with nuclear, you know, lately has been has been cost and and managing of, of construction of these really large complex you know systems. That's been been a huge challenge. Um, I have a little bit different perspective than the folks on the nuclear side of the house. Uh, you know, I you know cost is a big driver for us, and so we're we're always harping on that, but. Um, with the small modular reactors, you know, maybe you can get, uh, you know, skirt some of those those big challenges like that with, you know, really complex construction and make it more manageable. Uh, you know, bite off smaller chunks instead of these, you know, huge massive investments. Um, so that's interesting, but I think you know we're going to have to see those go into higher price markets first. You know, like Alaska and back at places on the East Coast and stuff to to really get some experience and start to scale up and. And they're going to have to go through the same thing that we're, you know, we're thinking with with batteries. You know, try to get more deployments, more scale, more experience, and and uh, make it cookie cutter. So you see you about know. five or ten years behind batteries as far as competitiveness, or where, or Kate or somebody else yeah. want to jump in? Just um, I completely agree with all of all of that. It's it's nuclear is just inherently incredibly complicated to get to to pilot and develop because it's so such a regulatory morass for good reason. It's a dangerous technology, right, if not deployed well. So, but there are terrestrial energy as a company that has now actually gotten through that process in Canada and is starting to do some of these demonstrations with small-scale reactors. There's a real opportunity for them to be integrated into some of these microgrid and regional grid conversations. Um, I just personally, I can't see another big nuclear plant being built in the United States anytime soon. It's just too expensive, and the waste issue is the other big issue. There's a big political issue around waste. There's a big issue around cost. There's too much other stuff that's cheaper, and it's just not, it's not going to happen. It's one of the reasons SB 100 passed in California that people were, there was a set of people who said, what doesn't that mean nuclear is included if it's clean and not renewable? And the, the bottom line on it was no one's ever going to build another nuclear plant in California. So it didn't matter at the end of the day politically that that was true. And I think we're going to see that more and more. So SMRs potentially, and then, but we're, no one's weighing in on the timeline. We're, we're not there yet. I mean, I okay. think, yes, we're behind batteries, don't you think, uh, on small-scale reactors? Yeah, by 10 years, probably. Okay, so gives you a little bit of a range there. Um, and then the final, sorry, and we'll, we'll wrap this quickly, but it's important. It's, it's about given the, really the costs of, and the speed at which we're integrating these technologies and, and when it comes to climate, the need for climate, but also the need for our economies to benefit from these technologies. So given the demise of the clean power plant, our market forces enough um, to drive the conversion to low carbon or no carbon sources at the pace needed to avert the worst of Kate's uh, graphs about climate impacts. And for Mitch, more specifically, as you reduce the reliance on coal, how do you make decisions about what you close, when and how, and does that include a price on carbon? Is that predicted at any time frame as you consider those costs? I'll do a really, really short it. beginning on that. That's a big question, but... Yeah. You know, the, the reality is that it will not happen as fast as we need it to, to avert to get to 1.5 degree warming, for instance. We just, the political processes and economic processes are clunky and hard, and we're talking about economic transformation. It's a lot, a lot of pieces. Um, that means resilience is really important, and I just would, yeah. would echo that again, what Kurt was talking about, that there is a big piece of this that's just about being more secure and resilient in the face of some of the existing impacts uh, and the existing emissions. Uh, but in terms of our, our market forces moving, they are completely moving. I mean, I talked about this last night, but coal has come way down in uh, as a percent of our, our U.S. energy 
um, mix in, in large part because of market forces, because natural gas came online and was a lot cheaper, and because renewables got so much cheaper. Those are the two reasons that coal is going down there. It's not about a war on coal. It's about the market, um, making, making people making decisions that are market-based. Other, the region, the Western region, California obviously have all, has all these policies. Oregon and Washington are developing a lot of policies. The Western region is a leader on this stuff and is creating a giant market for most of it, which Idaho is very proximate to. So that's something. Um, around the world, 20 countries and 40 jurisdictions have prices on carbon now. Those are only getting higher. And uh, people are increasingly putting, and the thing I should have talked about and didn't, putting prices on negative emissions as well. So carbon removal is becoming more and more valuable, another place where Idaho has a real advantage. So. The market, you know, in some ways, despite whatever's happening at individual state levels, the market is changing all around, and this train is moving. And um, I just think it's it's not moving as fast as the climate scientists would like it to move because of the reality of politics. But it is absolutely moving. Um, I'd like to just touch on the cost a little bit, and I'll pass it over. Um, the the important thing to think about with cost is not what's the cost of the electric. Uh, generators that are out there today, you know, not what's the cost of electricity from Hell's Canyon or Bridger. The, the important thing to think about it with cost is what's the cost of the next new asset that we bring online. And pretty much uh, in most places in the nation right now, wind and solar are the lowest cost alternatives unsubsidized. Subsidies just make it more, more so, but subsidies are going away for wind and probably for solar as well. But on an unsubsidized basis, Right now in the, in the Midwest of the U.S., wind is the cheapest, there's no question. In most of the desert Southwest, solar is the least cost alternative. So if you're just looking at pure cost, renewables are, are certainly leading the way. What's um, you know, really interesting to a lot of folks around our lab is, is as we get higher and higher penetrations of, of variable generation, you know, the, the longer duration storage question, the costs, uh, you know, nuclear base load mixed in there. Um, you know, alternative thing, integrating in EVs and managing that in the system, using that as a, as a flexible resource. Um, industrial processes, you know, hydrogen for making steel. Um, all those types of things are, are really interesting, you know, longer term as we start to get, you know, above 50%, 60% penetration of, of variable generation. And so that, that's kind of what we're... A lot of our people are thinking about on the horizon. There are these, these, you know, really challenging things trying to shift energy from here to here over long durations. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. You know, the analysis as we look at um, unit shutdowns. I mean, it's not. We're not just talking energy. I mean, we're talking about what we talked about earlier with some of the reserve capability, the flexible, the ramping. I mean, there's characteristics of some of these existing facilities um, that we need to account for in a replacement. And, you know, a lot of the costs we see with the resources, you know, with um, the, the wind and solar don't always account for some of those other value streams and, and what's needed to operate a system. So, you know, wind, you know, 30% capacity factor over a course of a year, meaning, you know, 70% of the time we need a, another resource. Solar, 20 to 30, meaning we need another resource 70 to 80% of the time. And then handling the ramps and intermittency, like, in our evaluation, um, we have to account for a resource being there when you need it. And certainly storage, we've had the conversation today, storage is a great example of that. Um, there are limits, you know, like the four hour duration is kind of what you hear today, but there are limits to what it can provide and how much of the year. Um, but I mean, to your question, Amy, or to the question asked, 
we do need to consider more than just the, the variable cost of um, a replacement resources. And to the question about, you know, what we see, you know, it really is economics um, as much as anything, you know, like it's, it's, uh, we see it happening, you know, we see the cost of renewables as they compare. Um, so there's certainly, it's, we see the transition, you know, we're part of it, we're in the middle of it. Um, we're trying to, again, back to the kind of the balanced approach, you know, we, we have to keep reliability in mind as we do transition. So that is a major element when we do look at these shutdowns and potential replacements is keeping, you know, keeping the lights on. Um, so I think we can do that. It's, it's kind of hard. We talked about the market mechanisms and kind of the values for storage. Um, that'll, it'll happen. Um, I don't, it's not all the way there yet, you know, all the value streams for it, but it'll happen and we're certainly trying to account for that in our analysis um, going forward. But I, I think it's promising. Is the hydro already on the system, given that we have so much hydro? Yeah. Can it help a lot with that? Good because point. It's already um, there? We're, again, we're fortunate in Idaho, like our hydro base um, allows us to integrate the amount of renewables we have. You know, we have idle power system. We have a thousand, over a thousand megawatts of wind and solar. You know, our peak demand is 3,400 um, megawatts. So 3.4 gigawatts, and we have a thousand um, of w wind and solar. And the the reason we're able to do that is because of our hydro base. So the hydro really, really helps on on multiple levels, really. And then, of course, there's all the renewables, I guess, that we could potentially export to other places. And But that's geothermal. We haven't even talked about geothermal. All right, with that, um, we, we're going to wrap it up. But I think uh, just to throw some thoughts out there. So I think we heard from folks that buying electric vehicles as individuals, as fleet owners, if you own businesses, et cetera, is a great way to help move some of these markets forward. But also think about what this means for our key industries here, the leading industries that we have, the tech industry, the healthcare industry, agricultural users, water pumping. Where are those opportunities at, uh, for our key industries where it's not just creating new energy jobs, but it's also creating opportunities for those industries to be more competitive uh, by potentially integrating and or keeping the hospital's lights on in times when we need them to be on. So pretty exciting time, complicated issue. Thank you so much to our panel for helping us to understand where we are, where we can go, and what needs to happen. Please join me in thanking them and thank all of you for coming. So that was Amy Christensen, Executive Director of Sun Valley Institute for Resilience, and her panel of forward thinkers on the risks and opportunities of climate change. To learn more information about Sun Valley Institute or about the Sun Valley Forum on Resilience, visit sunvalleyinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and let us know what you'd like to hear on a future episode. This episode was edited by me, Serena Simons, and recorded on site by Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Yeah.